Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. My name is Nathan, and I'm a legal assistant at SATC. And I'm here today with Lisa Hinton. She is the executive director of the Metro Chicago American Heart Association. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. When I started to do some background work for this episode, there were several things that kind of stuck out at me that I really want to chat with you about, um, both about the association and your experience. But I want you to start with telling us about your background, maybe where you're from, so that our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit. Sure. Uh, Well, I grew up in Ohio, actually a town called Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is an east side town for anyone from the area. Um, They may know that. And I moved to Chicago uh, about almost 15 years ago, 14 years ago, um, to really launch my career in in nonprofit and uh, find a new place to live and work and grow. I did see that you went to Miami of Ohio, is that yes. correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, is that a school that was close to where you grew up? So it's um, so that is more towards the southern part of Ohio. Okay. So it's about four hours away from where I grew up. Um, about as far, almost as far as you could go away from home while still remaining in-state for in-state <laughs> tuition. So um, so it was, it was far enough away, but close enough that you, know, you could come back for a weekend or whenever something... Yeah whenever there was a reason. So did that influence your decision a little bit to go there? <laughs> well, truthfully, the the scholarships I got were the biggest deciding factor um, in where I went. Miami is a, a tremendous school, um, so it, that, that certainly um, helped. And then being able to have in-state tuition and get some great scholarships made it a pretty obvious choice for me. Yeah, and I see that you studied health and sports sci- science, is that correct? Yeah, my major was in exercise science, so okay. it, it was in um, health and sports studies. Uh, I had planned to be a physical therapist, so that was really what I went to college for. So it, it sounds interesting, exercise science, but a lot of the classes overlapped with pre-med classes, um, sure. so you think a lot of the health sciences in that way. And uh, while I was in college, I joined, uh, very oddly, a sales and marketing fraternity. Um, I went along to help out a roommate who wanted to get into it and wound up in a intense interview process and got accepted to the the co-ed fraternity. And that really put me on a different trajectory. So while I didn't change my major, I still stuck with it. When I was coming towards the end of my undergraduate um, time, I was able to do a service project um, with that sales and marketing fraternity, Pi Sigma Epsilon, that actually benefited benefited the American Heart Association. And it was after that, I graduated, I was going to go to grad school and I stopped and I thought gosh do people do this for a living I had a lot of fun raising money going out in the community you know all all of this and I started doing research and that's when I saw oh my god there's this whole industry this whole world out there and maybe that's where I'm supposed to be so I put my PT school on hold moved to Chicago and um, started my nonprofit career there so uh it's a completely changed my trajectory for sure. 
Yeah, and I want to talk about that a little bit because obviously most people are pretty young when they start college. Although, you know, today there are people of all ages starting mm-hmm. college in many different ways. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, people are still pretty young when they start college. And it's a pretty big decision to make at such a young age. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people find themselves maybe saying, ah, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I don't want to study this anymore. Maybe the, the path is different than I thought. What what would you say about your experience with that, and what would you say to people who are kind of maybe thinking about the same sort of thing? Yeah, I think we one of the beautiful things about any individual journey through life is that we can change our mind at any time. Yeah. So uh, whether it's what you're studying or who you want to be 10 years after college or 10 years after that, anything is really possible in being able to recreate yourself or uh, refine yourself on the things that you've realized um, as you've grown that you love doing or are good at or want to do more of. So I think college is one aspect of that. And you make a decision at a point in time about what you think you might want to do based on who you are then. But whether you change your mind again in college or after or stick with it, I think that that everyone's journey is unique and that's one of the beautiful things is that we can create it as we go and change it as we go yeah and you also make me think about something really important that i always tell uh young people who are starting college and that is to get involved to do something to find an organization to find people that you can really come alongside and you know something that interests you because i think uh it could be a real mistake if you don't get involved and you don't like Try something maybe that you you don't know if you're interested in even. Yeah, absolutely. The experiences we have and the people we meet mold us and shape us. And sometimes we're not, we don't even know what's happening in the moment or it manifests later in life. But um, those all, all of our experiences do that. So getting involved uh, creates more opportunity for different types of experiences. So I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah, and how did your family maybe feel about your decision to to look at nonprofits as a career path? Did they were they on board with that? Yeah, they were. You know, they um they didn't have that much opinion about it, I okay. guess, in in looking back, you know, it, my except for my grandma. My grandma thought I was making a huge mistake that I should um, go into continue my my education and I had to get a graduate degree and what was I thinking? Um, which, of course, I wound up getting a, a graduate degree later on just in nonprofit management mm-hmm. after getting some work um, in the industry and really knowing that, that that was the place for me and what I wanted to do. And um, reflecting on it, it's been really interesting because while I didn't wind up going into physical therapy, all of that science and studying um, physics and biology and anatomy and how the body works uh, really comes into play with what I do today too. And and I've really focused my career in voluntary health nonprofits. And so there's always that element of science um, and physical science going on there. And so I'm still able to be absorbed in it to some extent while uh, using other skills around sales, management, leadership um, in a different way. And so you know, when I made the decision, did I know that this is where I would sit one day? Absolutely not. But um, nor did my grandma. Though I think <laughs> I think if she were still with us, she'd be proud. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but but my my uh, family has been very supportive. Good. As a whole. Yeah. 
Um, and so when you're young and you move to Chicago for work, I assume, mm-hmm. at that point, yeah. um, what was starting your career like? What was that, that getting that first job sort of? Yeah, I think it was exciting. Um, when I was young, I kind of wanted to come out quick and prove myself, you know, mm-hmm. this, this sort of I wanted to learn a lot and absorb a lot, but also find ways to jump in and make an impact right away. Um, and I, th- I think that that served me well, but I also had moments of realizing how much I didn't know yet yeah. and how much more I had to learn through that process. Uh, but I was able to have a job where I could wear many hats and I could get exposed to a lot of different um, elements of the nonprofit I was working for and and um, those pieces of work. And before before moving here and before going um, into the nonprofit sector, I had worked uh, as an administrative assistant too for an association in Cleveland. And I think that that work, doing the grunt work, right, the work that is not always glamorous, mm-hmm. the making copies and sending out mailers and um, setting up rooms for meetings, whatever it might be, answering front desk phones really set me up because what I learned at a young age, which I try to teach staff that I work with today too, is that no matter what your job is, you are an integral part of the overall picture, the overall mission um, in terms of, of the nonprofit world. And you need to be your absolute best at it. So if you are sticking labels on an envelope, I was determined I'm going to be the absolute best, fastest, most accurate, efficient label (laughs) sticker, right, that there was. Just if this is my task and this is what I have in front of me, then I need to bring my best to it. And applying that mentality has helped me grow and learn new things and advance in that way. And that's a mentality that I try to pass along to others and something I was able to learn pretty quickly when I was young starting out my career of, I may not be the boss, I may not be in charge or or make these decisions, but I need to be the absolute best at whatever it is I'm doing. And that's the best way I can serve the organization. I want to follow up a little bit on that because I think that's really important. And, and I think that, you know, that's great advice, but I think it's also those kind of things that, you know, go unnoticed and mm-hmm. go unrecognized. Uh, and so for people who are like, yeah, that's great. That's what I do every day. You know, I, I answer phones or I stick labels or whatever it may be. Yeah. I do that every day and it doesn't really seem like it is pushing the organization forward or it doesn't seem like people are noticing or it doesn't seem like people care. Mm-hmm. What drove you to continue to do that? And then what would you say to people who are like, I don't know how I'm helping the bigger picture by just doing the, the menial, seemingly menial day, daily tasks that I do. Right. Well, the, the big picture isn't possible without the details. Okay. Right. So any big picture, or think of a beautiful work of art, but any big picture would fall apart without the little details that build it. And so those little details might be sending out that letter or answering that phone and providing great customer service. And there's a million examples that can bring that to life. And so I try to share some of those examples, even when I'm coaching young managers to make sure that they're seeing the value in everything each of their staff members bring and sharing some of that feedback directly. So direct praise, uh, direct appreciation for that work, because if that person wasn't answering the phones, who would? And 
you know, perhaps or perhaps they answer a phone call and it turns out that it's from someone who becomes a top donor. And if they didn't have that great first customer service experience with that person answering that phone, they may never have gone on that journey with the organization in that way. So life is made up of details. Our work is made up of details and it all fits into the bigger picture. So even if it seems irrelevant or menial or, um, you know, boring even in the moment, <laughs> it's important because it's part of what makes it all work um, and makes makes the big picture possible. Can you tell us about something in your early career that was challenging that maybe you were surprised by where you didn't think that that would be so challenging or you didn't see it kind of coming? I know there's a lot that we don't see coming, but something that maybe surprised you that was challenging about starting off? I have to think about that one a little bit of something that was challenging starting off. I mean, I, I think anytime you're learning something new, there's there's a learning curve challenge, of course. But I'm trying to think of something a little more specific for your question. Um, I think there's at, at each phase there's been different challenges. So maybe I'll answer it that yeah. way. Um, yeah. A few challenges or things I've really had to learn or things that maybe I have been surprised by as I've grown. Um, one of them is um, work-life balance, truthfully. Mm-hmm. So finding, um, I, I operated with a lot of urgency and that goes back to the, couldn't be the best at, you know, even the, the smallest task. Yeah. And I wound up putting more pressure on myself that would ultimately burn me out. So I realized I was the cause of my own burnout in, okay. in a lot of ways. And um, so realizing that the world's not going to fall apart tomorrow if I step away for a second and take a breath for myself and find that balance. So I think that's been um, an interesting journey and one that um, motherhood has forced me <laughs> to be a lot better at because sure. you have uh, a lot of home demands on your time too and and you kind of have a different perspective when have that other job (laughs) there too uh you know I think another thing that I've learned and I don't know if it's surprising but it definitely was a change in thinking or or mindset or or something that maybe I didn't think about it this way when I was young starting out in my career but you know you come in at at maybe the bottom rung of an organization in whatever role and you look at the people in the leadership roles that are making decisions and you think, gosh, well, I could make that decision or why would they do it that way? Or I'm just as smart or I can't wait to have that power or that control and be the one who gets to do it my way. And what I've really learned is in each level of growing as a leader and each level of responsibility in my career is that, um, the best leaders really serve. And so it's not about being in charge. It's not about um, having the power, but it's about being that servant leader. And so getting to a place where you realize that your role, uh, my role today as the executive director, it's not about me. It's about everyone I serve and everyone around me, whether that's staff or donors or volunteers or the communities we're trying to make healthier. And so I think that's been an evolution of that shift of thinking that, you know, oh, it would be great when I get to have the power, right, to really understanding that it's a great responsibility to be um, in this role. And it's a humbling responsibility. And my role is really to serve others and make others better and, and help them achieve their goals. 
Would you say that's a, a culture shift or maybe a work shift for leaders to go from saying, these are like, I have 300 people who work for me or work under me to mm -hmm. saying, I serve 300 people in our organization. Is that something that has shifted across the spectrum or is that something maybe with, uh, with newer leadership or, or is it just something that is inside of you maybe? Yeah. Um, well, it, it's interesting, you know, the sort of Vincentian principles of servant leadership have been around a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily a new concept, but I think as the workforce has changed, we have um, a, a workforce that's demanding different things of leaders today than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, we have technology playing a role too, in terms of just sharing that information or even sharing examples of good leaders or um, or the ability to apply for new jobs and see what else is out there. There's so much more at our fingertips now, um, and there's so much more we can be aware of. So was it there before or not? You know, probably yes and no in, in some cases, but so much more is readily available. And I think there's a much more competitive job market that if someone is looking for that type of leader and they don't have it, then they're they're more likely to go somewhere where they can find it. And um, as we see, a, a you know, the millennial workforce coming in, they're looking for different things than the generation before them from their employer. Um, they want to make an impact. They don't, you know, just want to make profit. They want to work for an employer, um, even a, a corporation or, or, you know, a nonprofit. Obviously, you have that baked in a little bit, but yeah. who, um, who, is it's bigger than whatever product they're selling or whatever service they're providing or what they're doing. They're wanting that um, tie into making a bigger difference. And so I do think there's more of a demand from the workforce that is creating some shifts and change. Um, but you probably see, and I'm not an expert on this, differences by industry too. So okay. so to that point, I'm sure you see differences by, by industry in terms of leadership styles and then by individuals. Um, as well, but it's definitely an interesting time uh, to be yeah. in leadership. So you talk about differences in industry. Let's talk about the nonprofit industry since that's the one obviously that, that you're sure. in now and have been for a long time. Do you feel like people have different expectations of leaders of nonprofits even at its highest level, the executive directors or CEOs versus maybe one at a for-profit company and one of the big ones where um, you know people have thousands upon thousands of employees. Do you see a big difference in what people expect from you, not just in your work, but maybe socially or social media or technology based? Mm -hmm. Yes and no to some extent. So where I see this come up the most is people look at um, a CEO. So the CEO of the American Heart Association, Nancy Brown, all the information on salaries and that type of thing is public. And this is a huge organization with an international footprint and thousands of staff. I mean, what a incredible, awesome responsibility. And what you'll see is someone um, question where the dollars are going mm -hmm. because a CEO of, you know, the American Cancer Society makes this or looking at some of these big ones, the Red Cross makes that or, or AHA and um, you know, there's an expectation that it's, it's, they should do it for nothing. Right. But it's still a job and it's still right. an industry where you're not looking at the CEO of, um, you know, PepsiCo or, uh, 
or, or any other for-profit company, um, I'm looking out our windows now to see, <laughs> but uh, any other for-profit company and questioning that in the same way. So I do think there's um, some differences there in terms of expectation um, yeah. when, you know, people who work in nonprofit um, make less than a, a counterpart in a similar job at a for-profit corporation and they go into it knowing it. So there's some element of them that, um, you know, it's not necessarily about the climbing the corporate ladder for, but it's still a line of work and it's still a job and it's still a source of income for them and their family and their well-being. And I think that sometimes people think, well, you're a nonprofit, like you're, you're volunteering, right? right. You're, and it's really a huge industry. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that that's an interesting difference um, at times. Yeah, and there's still a great amount of responsibility that is ultimately going to fall on your shoulders, yeah. regardless of if you had direct impact on, on it or not. Mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot that you did early in your career, and you've worked with nonprofits for so long, so I don't want to breeze through all that, but I definitely want to talk about what you're doing now. And so if you could just briefly for me kind of talk about your time with these different organizations. I know you were with the Leukemia Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, the MS Society, some really great organizations doing great work, but what for you was it like working with these organizations and what really like gave you life during that time? Yeah, uh, well, each one is a little different and that would probably take a long time to dive <laughs> into. So uh, to sum it up, though, I think the latter part of your question around what gave me life, um, especially it, it, different in different ways with each organization, but the people. I mean, the people we served, the people I got to work with, the people that have been impacted by some of these diseases and the tenacity they have and the perseverance they have and, um, you know, to, to fight through it, um, whether it's a chronic disease like MS or um, something uh, like, like a blood cancer, you know, the people really are the inspiration. And I think the other thing about the people, so there are the people that have been impacted by mm-hmm. the diseases that you get to know and they become a reason why for you, um, why you put in long hours or want to go the extra mile because you can really relate to them and their family and you you build that personal connection. But the other thing I'd say in summing all that up is it has ingrained in me or maybe deep deeper ingrained a belief that people are good mm-hmm. because there are those that aren't impacted or haven't been impacted but still come out to support or maybe they know um, someone three times removed but they come out to a walk or they make a donation or they volunteer their time and I think people so many people just need the opportunity to do that Um, and essentially there's so much goodness in the world and I see that constantly at every organization the amount of time that people who have demanding jobs and families and all these priorities give to nonprofit organizations by volunteering, um, the amount that they donate, the amount that, uh, you know, sort of of intellectual capital that they're willing to give and the portion of themselves that they're willing to invest is incredible. I don't think it'll ever cease to amaze me. Yeah. American Heart Association. I think most everyone's probably heard of it. 
we always yeah. obviously think of heart, heart yeah. disease, heart health, heart health. Mm-hmm. So tell me at its core, at its heart, so to speak, <laughs> what the association is and why it exists. Well, you may not know this, but the HA was actually founded here in Chicago. Oh, so that's, that's that. pretty, <laughs> a pretty neat um, thing. Six cardiologists sat around a table at the Drake and signed it into inception. And at the time, heart disease was a, was a death sentence. You know, mm-hmm. it there, there was very little understanding of it and very little in terms of what could be done if someone had a heart attack or was diagnosed with some form of heart disease. And so from the very beginning, we wanted to find answers and solutions. So we were very scientific, very research-based to just understand basic science of the heart. And then we've built on that. Um, So finding uh, treatments, things like stents or open heart surgeries, um, et cetera, you know, have really grown in that way. Um, We are also the American Stroke Association, so that's something that not everyone realizes. So in addition to heart health, we have grown to really include brain health. And if you think the vascular system really connects both of those and all ties in together. Um, So that's a way that we've we've really grown. Um, But another way we've grown to really talk about what we're all about now and all of that science and all of that treatment um, that has come out has led us to this point. But we now understand about the heart and about the brain is so much of heart disease, of um, brain uh, disease can be prevented. Mm -hmm. So up to 80% of heart disease is preventable. And we now know how to do that. And it's a lot of lifestyle behavior. So we look at eating healthy or physical activity, not smoking, um, all sort of those areas that if you follow guidelines or if you're living that healthy lifestyle, you can prevent heart disease from even happening. And then also, if you should not prevent it, we have all of these great interventions and treatments that can help someone survive much longer. So that's a lot of sort of where we've been. And now our most recent evolution as an organization has been a shift in um, how we we operate. And so we've always been concerned about health equity and making sure that we're helping all people. But we have become squarely focused in, in creating a world where health is equitable for all, where the healthy choice is the easy choice no matter where you live, work, and play. Because... Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we are not. It's not. Um, and yep. there are many social and economic influencers that prevent someone from from having their ideal health or, or become barriers for a person. Uh, so we've really evolved in a way that has taken us outside of our normal scope um, to root causes. So for someone who... Um, you know, there, there might be a, a mom and she is feeding her kids fast food every day and old uh, thought process around that would be, well, we just need to educate her about what healthy foods are. But when you really dive into it, she may not have access to healthy food in her community. She may not have a car and can't get to a grocery store. She may not be able to afford healthy food options if she does have access to them. Um, And she may not know about what's healthy or what she's doing. So there, there can be so many different factors. And so we've really, as we've evolved as an organization, have started 
started to figure out what our role is in addressing some of those root causes or some of those social influencers that um, present barriers to people having ideal health. So that's a lot of how we've grown and where our focus really is today. Yeah, and I want to expand a little bit on that last point that you brought up because when I was visiting the website for the American Heart Association, I saw a video that you posted about the Chicago Health Gap, mm-hmm. and that was both eye-opening and fascinating for me because yeah. I didn't really, I'd never really thought about it, and it makes complete sense. And mm-hmm. if you get a chance, definitely go to the website and watch the video um, because it kind of breaks it down really simply and really well. But I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that and tell us about what the health gap is and then maybe some reasons why it exists. Yeah, yeah. So there was a, an article that came out a couple months ago um, and it unfortunately for us in Chicago highlights that we have the largest gap in life expectancy between two communities. So if you um, live in uh, Englewood, your life expectancy is probably close to 60 years. If you live you know, the Gold Coast, your life expectancy is close to 90 years. So that's a 30-year gap. That gap is the largest in the country. Mm-hmm. And so that's definitely not a badge we, we want to wear yeah. right here in Chicago. And there are so many factors to that. Certainly, as I touched on, um, not having access to healthy food options. But in addition to that, not having access to safe places to exercise or work mm-hmm. or play um, outside, not having um, access to health care uh, or quality health care. Uh, lack of access to transportation, which can create you know barriers um, to to living a healthy lifestyle, uh, unemployment rates, um, poor air quality. There's there's so many factors in that economic instability, which would would be one um, you might think is obvious too. All of those factors really play into that. And what we found is you know that there's um, that gap between the South Side and and the Gold Coast. There are some pretty staggering gaps um, anywhere from 15 to 20 years between the loop and the west side uh, some west side neighborhoods as well and people tend to say well people are just dying from violence right they're just they're getting killed um, by by gun violence or this or that and when you dive into that violence is absolutely a factor because violence can prevent you from walking outside or yeah. can prevent the grocery store from coming into the neighborhood um, but what people are dying of is heart disease mm-hmm. and strokes and cancer and diabetes you know there these are the things that are killing people in every neighborhood and it's exacerbated when you have these social influencers that are making making living healthy or having access to basic um, things really difficult. Yeah. And so that's really what we're seeing there. And and for us, we're really looking at addressing that on a policy level, but also on a systems and environment level. So it can be as small as you know, leveraging our advocacy arm to extend a bus route that has cut off a community from healthy food access or from jobs. Um, to uh, Chicago has a uh, has a complete streets um, ordinance that says that you know, crosswalks should be safe and there should be safe places, um, sidewalks for people to walk. Yet if you get outside the loop, 
it's not always enforced or there might not be funding to actually make those repairs. So by drawing a light to some of that and advocating for it and putting some of the AHA muscle behind it, we can help impact that. And, um, you know, that's a precursor that's needed to be able to get out and take a walk, which is physical activity, which we know is good for your heart. So all of it is really connected in that way. So you, you would say that education and advocacy are equally as important to the AHA as prevention or, uh, or trying to treat heart disease, yes. heart issues. Yeah, absolutely. In the time that you've been with the AHA, how has it changed and how have you maybe helped drive that or how have you seen other people kind of come alongside that and, and really propelled it to where you're at now and then where you want to go in the future? Well, we've always been an organization that's followed the science what that is telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, what that's telling us informs how we deliver on our mission, what policies we back, what um, preventive measure, measures or programs we want to provide. So in our essence, we have always been very um, driven by science and, and the data and what we know. What has changed is where that science has taken us. So, you know, as I kind of mentioned in first, the evolution was was um, before my time because I was not around in the early 1900s, um, <laughs> but was really around, uh, you know, understanding heart disease and then finding interventions and treatments. But even in just my time and experience with the organization, we became so squarely focused in preventing heart disease, so um, public health education, and really looking at educating as many people as possible on what we call Life Simple 7, which are those things that you can do to um, ensure good heart health. Like I mentioned earlier, things like healthy diet, exercise, um, managing your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your body weight, and not smoking, um, things like that. And we still are focused in that, but we have evolved in um, our focus on the whole person and the whole community. So I think that's a good way to describe it. So our focus specifically on health equity looks not just at the people that um, generally receive our messages or might have access or enough enough awareness to go out and seek out the information, but how do we... um, again, address those root causes, those social influencers um, in all of our communities. So the whole community in that way too, understanding that it's a web um, and we can have a lot more impact going community-wide or systemically on an issue than we can person by individual person. So we can have more impact faster that way. And then the whole person too. And so we've found a lot that, again, everything is connected as we evolve to also be the American Stroke Association, finding you know those connections between mm-hmm. the heart and the brain. We also know now that our mental health is really connected to our physical health. So as we have a platform to talk about healthy lifestyles and good lifestyle behaviors, mental wellness has become a part of that. So sleeping and stress management, uh, if you're stressed, that can cause high blood pressure. So looking at root causes like that too, that are in our everyday lives and looking at the whole person. So I'd say that we really look at breaking down some silos that had existed, whether it's in the medical community or nonprofit community, to work very collaboratively on, again, serving the whole community and the whole person. Along those same lines, I want to ask you, um, 
kind of a two-part question. So part one is, when should a person start to care about their heart health? Mm -hmm. And then part two is, how do you deal with social influences as far as, I'll give you an example, vaping. Let's talk about that because I know that's got to be something that Mm -hmm. is huge. Obviously, it's huge right now, but there are huge health issues going on with that right now. And so when the social climate kind of changes or when trends start to set in and and you see those things, how how does that affect you, your organization, and then what can you guys do about that or what are you doing about those? Yeah, so the first part of your question, when should you start caring, the earlier the better. I mean, we are finding that if we are able to um, get someone into early adulthood with ideal cardiovascular health, they are way less likely to have a cardiovascular um, episode later in life. So the earlier the better. Um, and of course, when when you're really little, it's the parents that are need yeah. to care about your heart health as a child. But we do have, um, as young as elementary school, school school-based programs to start teaching kids about healthy eating and kindness and um, overall well-being. So we have um, a program called the Kids Heart Challenge that really gets into school as a service learning based program that teaches kids about adding color to their plate. So uh, eating your vegetables, your fruits, um, and it's amazing how impactful that can be because kids will come home and start saying to their parents, there's no color on my plate. Where are my peppers or tomatoes or I need fruit? And and it cre- it changes the dynamic. And sometimes that education works the other way, um, too, with the kids forcing the issue. Um, we also started at a young age there about uh, teaching kids that tobacco use is bad, and that includes vaping. Um, so vaping now more than ever, as, as that has really um, caught up to us, I say that as the world, um, in, in a very dangerous way, very quickly, um, as, as a big threat and a big health epidemic, um, but includes that too. So to start um, when kids are really young in teaching those facets. So, you know, some people think, oh, I'll care about my heart health when I'm 50, or I get of the age when heart attacks are likely, but heart disease can happen at any age. And what you do when you're 5, 10, 20, 30 has a huge impact on how healthy you'll be when you're 50, 60, 70. And so absolutely the earlier, the better. Um, And then you asked about sort of social trends or trends in the world. And um, in, in some, in many cases, we try to get in front of those, but we don't always have a glass ball. And vaping is one of those that we we felt for a long time that we had our thumb on big tobacco in a sense. Smoking traditional cigarette combustibles, smoking was going down. Um, and smoking in youth has been going down. Um, and then here comes really fancy looking vaping <laughs> products that... Um, that it's actually not a vapor, it's um, an aerosol. So just think of that, if you even thought of it that way, would you want to be inhaling an aerosol? But many of them are actually aerosols, not not, um, 
scientifically a vapor. But um, we have the rise of these products that are starting to look really cool. They kind of look, you know, you see the jewels, they look like an Apple product, right? Yeah, it looks like yeah. a little USB <laughs> plug-in. It's sleek. It looks cool. And there's not a lot of education about them. So the, and the message from the marketing from the companies putting these out has been, it's better than smoking, right? It's more, it's healthier for you, so to speak. Some have even said that word, healthier for you than smoking with no science or data to really back that up. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is probably not healthier for you than smoking and it's still a really highly addictive product in fact one jewel pod has as much nicotine in it as an entire pack of cigarettes so if you start thinking about that too and the addictive um uh, attributes of nicotine you think at a very young age kids think this is cool and they're in you know influenced socially by it and they don't yet have um the message that it's not healthy yeah. and it's not um, okay. And parents don't know about it. You know, kids are able to vape in school and in school bathrooms completely undetected at times. Um, and the products out there are insane to cater to kids and, and really try to addict this whole generation to, to these products. So we've had to... Um, uh, act with great urgency and come together with our collaborative partners and take really swift movement and stances to try to combat things like that. Um, so I think, you know, what's happening in in the social world, you know, that's a perfect example of how we need to be nimble and react. And, and um, it's kind of like if we're fighting a war, right, on everything unhealthy, then this is like a... a troop that just charged in and we got to put our attention to it there. Yeah. I think the other thing too, not quite social, but there are so many factors that that influence us beyond a person's real individual decision making. So if you go, um, one of the things we look at is um, the, the food, the process of um, mm. getting food from, you know, uh, in, into someone's house to begin with and um, the ingredients that are used or things that have been put in that are essentially unhealthy and maybe they've been used to be able to mass produce the food to keep up with demand or because it tastes a little better and it sells the product. Um, but working at that inception point with um, big food production or ingredient production companies to reduce sodium so that even if the consumer's uh, habit doesn't change and and I'm almost scared to use a company name, but like if they, they keep buying their Campbell's chicken noodle soup over time, they're not even realizing that Campbell's has put less sodium in it and it's healthier now than it was 10 years ago yeah. um, because we're working systemically in that way um, with those points of influence that, you know, the consumer then in that situation, their behavior hasn't changed. They're still go buying, still going in to buy the same can of soup and brand they've always bought. But on the back end, we're really working to make that healthier than than maybe it was before. So there's a lot in our environment. I know you asked about social, but when you look environment and systems wide that um, we really need to tackle at the root or, or partner with um, to make just the options that people even have to choose from healthier to begin with. I always like to talk to people about the people that work in their organization because I feel like they really enjoy sharing about that because obviously we get to talk to you and we get to hear your story but there's a whole 
group of people behind you that are kind of pushing this organization forward. So just tell me about the people at the American Heart Association and what, what it is about them that just makes it special. Yeah, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, gosh, the people are so incredible. And um, each person is so unique. And I think that, that adds a lot of strength to it, too, because um, – Everyone brings a different background or experience or um, viewpoint to the table that when you combine that all together in a collaborative setting, that, that's when magic can happen, right? That's when, when we're able to um, do some real good in the world. So we have people who are, like our CEO, who are complete visionaries and um, are awe-inspiring in that way. And then we have people at many levels of the organization that give 150%, you know, put in um, so more hours than needed or go the extra mile for a, a donor or someone we serve or each other. Um, and I think that that is really special, um, too. And we have people who really lift each other up. And I think that's a really neat part of it, too. When I think of our team here in Chicago, um, you know, everyone has their little quirks or things that make the office environment fun and unique. But when someone needs help, when a colleague needs help, there are, you know, 10 people around raising their hand right away um, mm -hmm. to do that. And I think that that happens a lot when you are all rooted in serving the same mission. Um, and then you're invested in each other's success because you're able to see that the greater success is only possible um, when we all have, have success. And we all root for each other personally, which I think is a, another really great facet of it. We get to know each other's kids and spouses or um, family members in that way, which, which uh, you know, it, it's, it's like having a work family, right? You spend more hours in many cases with your coworkers <laughs> than right. you do with your actual family or friends. So, um, you know, you have to... Um, uh, make that fun and engaging and enjoyable and allow for um, those connections in the workplace to be made too. Um, so we, we just have a really talented group though. I mean, uh, some of the best I've, I've ever seen in terms of um, intelligence and skill and professionalism and um, what, what they're able to bring to the table, everyone just being really good at, at their area of what they do that makes the whole thing click. Right. So for people who want to connect with the American Heart Association, how can they do that? What are all the social media platforms and the website that they can go to for all those? Yes, we, um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So on Twitter, we are Heart Chicago. On Facebook, we are AHA Chicago. And on Instagram, we're also AHA Chicago. And then our website is heart.org. And you can toggle through that to our local office um, where there's staff contact information. There's also information, any of our upcoming events, uh, volunteer opportunities, what we're doing in the community that might be of interest. Lisa, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, thanks so much. Really, really good stuff and really good a uh, lot of stuff to process through and to sort of break down. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come in today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. 
You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guest's individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.